what an awesome opportunity we have to just gather around God's word. What a gift he's given us in it. We're in James chapter 1. We're going to be picking up in verses 5 through 8. As I was thinking this morning, I think we're just going to read that first section all together just to maintain some context. So uh, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open your Bible and settle in there. Uh, and, and we'll read and study this together. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, we need you. You have promised that through your word you would work, that, that your spirit would lead us into truth. And so we ask for your presence among us now. That you would be the teacher. That your word would, would come to us in power to change us and transform us. To do its work to make us look and act more like Christ. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So James points his letter at Christians. It's clear as he writes that he is, he is speaking specifically to Christian folks. He's not being evangelistic in the sense of, hey, come and hear the good news so that you can believe it. He's speaking to people who he already has an understanding or already assumes are believing the gospel. And so he, he just jumps right in giving commands, giving instruction about what the life of a Christian should look like. There's 54 commands across 108 verses. Uh, and, and last week we actually dealt with two of those. Uh, we're, we're stepping into the third imperative that he gives the church this week. But he, he starts off, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. You know, the, the, the theme there, the idea is, is that he knows that these trials are going to do some massive work. They're going to do some important thing. And so rather than reacting like the rest of the world, Christian people should respond differently to those trials. I came across uh, J.B. Phillips' paraphrase earlier this week, when, and it, it reads this way. The words aren't on the screen, but, but let me just read them to you. Listen, when, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders but welcome them as friends. Is that not a unique way to respond to a trial, to a difficulty you face? Welcome them as friends. Realize that they come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. That reminded me, as I was sitting and just thinking about that, that reminded me of a conference I was at. It was an Acts 29 Network conference, and I had the privilege to be there, and a man named Thabiti Anabwali was there, and he was speaking, he was teaching us, and and, and he said something to the effect of this in one of his talks. When suffering and trials come knocking at your door, say to them, Welcome, slave. Come in and do the master's 
bidding. We often think that we're under the power of some force or some evil when we face trials. The reality is those trials are under the power and sovereignty of the God who rules all things. You see, this, this, these are radically different ways for us to approach the trials of life than just the normal, normal blaming, doubting, running from, getting angry at God that so often marks the response of people in the world. And just to illustrate just how drastically different it could be, I want to share with you a vid- video that I came across a few years ago. I'm just going to warn you, it's going to come maybe with a punch, but it's a pastoral punch. But it depicts, let me just, it just depicts how different the call on the Christian is. Not because of who we are, so much as what God has done. Go ahead. This person writes in, tragic, I am trying to reconcile the death of my adult son, whom I believe not to be saved, with my Christian faith. How do I deal with my anger toward God in this long, dark night of the soul? Repent, and repent in dust and ashes. Crawl over glass in your repentance if you're angry at God. There's never been anything that's happened to you in your whole life, including this great tragedy and most painful experience that could ever possibly justify being angry at God. There are 10 million reasons why he should be angry at you. God does not owe us a life without pain and tragedy. He's given us a life of grace and a promise of eternal felicity. And any being who does that for us 100% graciously can never righteously be the object of our anger, only of our gratitude. The video goes on, and uh, for our purposes, I edited it down so that we could see it. He's got more to say about that. I would encourage you, if you want the link, I'll send you the link. I'd encourage you to go and watch the the whole answer he gives. But the, sprawl, the, 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 the point Sproul's making isn't much different than the, the point James starts with. As a Christian, anger at God as a result of various trials has no place. See, James didn't give us a choice when he said, count it all joys. He commanded us, count it all joy. Now, the world... Like Job's wife is in the face of trials going to ask us, are you going to hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Like they're going to deny his existence. They're going to demand that you be angry at him. They're going to say, oh, well, he's a big God and he can, he, he can take that anger. In fact, he expects you to be angry with him. I don't think James gives us that space. The truth is, though, that if we don't immediately jump to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, it may not be so much an issue of faith 
as much as, as it is a lacking of wisdom. See, James moves from this count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because he knows what's coming, because he knows what God is going to do through these trials. He's calling us to, to look at them and see what's beyond the trial and count that as joy. But we need something. We need something if we're going to be able to see what God is doing. We need more than just knowledge. We need an ability to apply that knowledge. We need wisdom. So the reality is, is that through our trials, God isn't just strengthening our faith. He's showing us how desperately dependent upon him for a, for a perspective that reaches beyond the tip of our nose. We don't just need any wisdom. We need his wisdom. You see, we need his insight. We need his understanding. We need his perspectives. We need to know what God knows. So that we can look at the trials the way God looks at our trials. Christian, the trials of life may reveal our lack of wisdom. And they do. (laughs) But our good God gives wisdom to anyone who asks in faith. It's a promise. As much as there is a a command in this text, in these verses 5 through 8, as much as there is a command to go asking God, there is a promise that He will give it. Listen, the process of finding our faith being strengthened is difficult. The process of, of being made steadfast in our faith, the process of becoming complete and lacking in nothing is difficult. Being confronted with the reality that you don't know and aren't capable as much as you believe you are is difficult. I don't like finding out I'm wrong. I don't like finding out that I don't know all I think I know. I I like to think of myself as all that in a bag of chips. I don't even know if that's a phrase that anybody uses anymore. Sorry. If if you don't know what that means, we can talk later. I like to think of myself that way. And then I face trials of various kinds. And I find out I'm not. It's messy work that God's got to do in a broken, fallen, sinful people that he has redeemed and is transforming. When I was still in aviation, there was a guy that worked for me. Uh, Many of you know him. His name is Craig King. But at work, he was one of the messiest mechanics that ever worked for me. He was messy. We called him pig pen. It was bad. He was great because you could give him a job and you could walk away and know that you would not see him again until it was complete. Like he was a trustworthy, solid mechanic. He'd always do a good job. But if you walked up on him in the middle of the job, you'd, well, I challenged him a number of times, like, what are you doing? And he'd always answer the same way. Well, you know, you got to crack a few eggs to make a cake. Got to make a mess. To get to the other side, to enjoy the good stuff. And the reality is, is that these trials, these difficulties, at least in the economy of God, just cracking a few eggs so he can make a cake. I, I hope you realize you're 
much more valuable than a cake. But he's making a mess, and he's willing to walk into that messiness. He's willing to lead you into that messiness. He's willing to watch you endure in the midst of that messiness and not immediately intervene and not remove the difficulty because not only will it strengthen your faith, in your faith at some time you will run to him and seek his wisdom. And that's exactly where James moves to. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, what, what, what do we lack? James highlights wisdom. What, what, what's the issue? What, what is it we're lacking? What is this wisdom that he's talking about we lack? Well, we talked a lot about that in the study of Ecclesiastes. We reviewed it in depth. One of the, one of the definitions that I used repeatedly for that it was from Spurgeon, where in one of his sermons he highlights wisdom, I suppose, it, wisdom is, I suppose, the right use of knowledge. To know it is not to be wise, or to know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are all the more fools for what they know. There is no fool so great as a fool, as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. Uh, along those same lines, a man named Layman Strauss, in his commentary on the book of James, says this, Wisdom is far more than the accumulation of information and intellectual perception. The fact is, man, through his vast accumulation of knowledge, has learned to travel faster than sound, but displays his need of wisdom by going faster and faster in the wrong direction. Man has amassed a huge store of information about the world, but shows his abysmal lack of wisdom by failing failing to live any better in the world. I would go a step further in saying, we've learned a lot about the world, but we show our lack of wisdom because we continue to seek to deny the one who created it. In fact, with all we're learning, we're seeking to do everything to demonstrate that it proves that there's something else out there, that in some way there's not an eternal creator, but in some way this always just existed. That's foolish. A.T. Robertson, a Greek uh, scholar in this passage, highlights the use of this word. And he defines it, the practical use of knowledge. F.J.A. Hort of the Westcott and Hort um, uh, Greek New Testament writes, That endowment of heart and mind which is needed for right conduct in life, over and over, the testimony is this. Wisdom isn't just knowing something. It's being able to use, to apply, to, to practice what you know. Remember James' point in this letter is not simply to speak about the faith that these Christians say they have. It is over and over to call them to practice the faith Act out the faith they profess. To actively express it in their life. And now he's saying, if you can't run to the counting, if you can't jump immediately to the counting at all joy, then you need wisdom. 
You need understanding so that you can see a perspective that's beyond yourself. If you're stuck in the suffering and the, and the, the depression and the anxiety and the, and the stress and the weight. And maybe even in the anger that comes as a result of the various trials we face. You may not have a faith issue. You may have a wisdom issue. You may just not have all the understanding from God that he intends to give you if you would only ask him in faith. You see the reality, let me just think about this for just a second. As R.C. Sproul addresses that parent, we don't know if it's mother or father. I don't know. In my mind, I, I, I imagine a mother. I don't know why. Maybe because dads don't care as much or something in my mind. I don't know if that's even real true. But What's amazing to me is that R.C. Sproul doesn't dismiss the weight of the issue, the tragedy. He doesn't disregard the fact that it is Heavy. He even affirms it. And he doesn't address the person's faith as if they must not be a believer. In fact, over and over, he affirms that he's speaking. If you listen to the language, go back and listen to it. He speaks to the person as a Christian because they are a recipient of God's grace. Yeah, what he understands is that they are misunderstanding who God is. They could sit and point their finger in anger. See, what he understands and what we need to understand is that this person doesn't have a faith issue as in that they don't trust God for life. That faith is still weak and it's still immature and it's still missing the wisdom that enables them to see beyond the struggle to what God will do on the other side. Of the struggle. When we talk with kids. And they don't like something going on. They don't refer to a particular instance. They just talk about it's always this way. You ever notice that? You're always so mean to me. Disregarding the fact that you get up in the morning and feed them breakfast. And buy them clothes and. Isn't that what we do to the Lord? When because something didn't go the way we wanted it to. or Because it's not a circumstance that we want to live in or experience. We begin to doubt him. Doubt his love for us. Doubt his care for us. Get angry with him. See, brothers and sisters, what we need is not just a stronger faith. What we need is wisdom that will strengthen our faith so that we can move from doubt, a desire to escape, a fear of God that quakes us, or an anger at God. We need a wisdom from God that enables us to look at the trial 
and see it as simple as a couple of eggs getting cracked so that they can be mixed into a batter that's going to make a delicious cake. The trials of life may reveal our lack of wisdom, but our good God gives wisdom to anyone who asks in faith. Well, where do we get that wisdom? James tells us God. See, not just any wisdom will do. The James doesn't send us to the world. He doesn't send us to sources like Dear Abby. And that's for you old folks. Or Reddit for you younger folks. You see, the reality is, is that James doesn't send us to the world to seek answers. Wisdom is not in the blog that's being posted that makes you feel good about your struggle. It's not in the place where people are gathering and complaining about how terrible it is to be victimized in this way. God's wisdom is not going to be found in the world. God's wisdom is found in God. He doesn't even point us primarily and firstly to God's people. Don't misunderstand. I think God's people can be used for this, but God is still the source. Don't misunderstand. I mean, he's teaching with wisdom and he's seeking to express wisdom. But all I can do is impart knowledge. I have no ability to make you wise. I have no ability to enable you to apply the knowledge I impart. You want wisdom? Seek God. Ask God. Him. Job understood this. In fact, Job 28 and Job, if you, if you know Job's story, if you don't, let me just give you a brief synopsis. He lost everything but his wife, who was the one who said you should curse God and die. And three, four friends that sat around and told him how bad he was and how God must be angry at him because he's a horrible person. I think he'd have been happy to lose them too. But in his response, in one of his responses, as he was listening to their words, he says this. From where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. About and death say, we have heard rumor of it in our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens himself. I'm sorry, sees everything under the heavens. The, the point Job makes is that God is the only one who can lead us into godly wisdom. We can certainly get advice. We can certainly gain perspective. We can certainly determine opinions and perspectives about how we should act based on what the world tells us. But James says, no, 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 don't do that. Go to God. In that passage, Job, in the, in the whole context, he sits and spends a number of words to show us how valuable it is to have God's wisdom. It's more precious than silver and gold. It can't be purchased with rubies. We must go to God. To have it is more important than anything else. James sends us to the same place. But I love that his reasoning is not because... We're faithful. 
In fact, the very reason he sends us to God is because of God's very nature. You see it? In verse 5, look, 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 look back at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And then he points out who God is and what God does. This isn't about who we are. It's not first and foremost about what we deserve. The reason that we can go to God and seek wisdom is because of who God is and what God does. His very nature is that God gives generously. The word translated generously, now you need to know this, it's not the typical word that we would expect to read is generous. It's not speaking about the, the, the although it could be inferred, it's not speaking primarily about the abundant sacrificial gifting in fact, James does something very unique here that has at least every, every commentary that I read from, and I'm reading from about 16 at this point, listening to about five preachers. Every one of them, without fail, struggled with how this should be interpreted. Because the original Greek word is only used in this way, in this place, and it has cognates, it has other re- related words that are used in other places. But James uses a very unique word that doesn't just speak of generosity, but speaks of single-mindedness, of an intentional and purposeful decision to give and not withhold. Douglas Moo, one of the commentators that I'm writing from, this isn't on the screen. I just want to give you a perspective. He writes, the evidence suggests that James is not so much highlighting God's generosity in giving as he is God's single undivided intent to give to those, or give, I'm sorry, let me start again. The evidence suggests that James is not so much highlighting God's generosity in giving as as he is, his single undivided intent to give us those gifts we need to please him. See, what it seems to be is that James is highlighting God's generosity, yes, but he's also inviting us to see God's single-minded devotion to give you exactly what you need to live as he has called you to live. You put this in the context of the, of the count it all joy, my brothers. Your faith is going to be grown. You're going to become mature. And eventually you're, 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 you'll be complete. You'll be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. He gives you trials to strengthen your faith. And then James tells us that if we would ask in faith, he'll give us wisdom so that we can become a people who are able to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. It is not God's intent in your life to call you to something that he will not enable you or empower you to become. But in many cases, he holds it back until we go and ask for the gift. He's just waiting there. Because God is about giving good gifts to his children. This is the, this is the teaching of all of the scripture. It's all across the, 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 the Bible from Old to New Testament. Now let me just share a few verses 
about how generous, how willing God is to give to us what we need that we might become what He intends. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He calls us to life. He says, live. You want eternal life? I'm going to give you exactly what you need for it. Simply believe. Acts 17, 25. Nor is he served by human hands. It kind of comes in the middle. He's talking about Jesus. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What what do you need? The basic needs of your life. I need bread, I need, I need, I need food, I, I, I need air, I need water, I need shelter. It all comes from God. Every ounce of it, He gives us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. When He sent His Son, He didn't send His Son to immediately sit down on a throne, did He? But to pick up a cross and carry it to His own death. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus' own description of his father in Matthew chapter 7. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We go to God to get wisdom, not because of who we are primarily, but because of who He is. He is a God, a good God who gives generously. And then He next says He is a God who gives without reproach. He doesn't blame you. He doesn't list all the ways you failed to properly use all that He's already given you. He doesn't have a list of demands for you to, to measure up to so that you can come in and enjoy more of his gen- generosity. He doesn't remind you of how much you already owe him. Hey, don't you realize my son died for you and now you want wisdom? He's not like the, he's not like the friend who loans you money and then gets upset about you going and using it for something other than they intended it. He doesn't blame you. He doesn't bring reproach upon you. Brothers and sisters, he gives without that. He's not like the friend who over the course of a, I don't know, how long it takes, a month, six months, a year of seeing someone in need, and yet I've just done so much for them already. This is really getting wearisome. He's not that way. God loves to give us what we need. He's a good father. He loves giving us what he knows will enable us to be who he's called us to be. To become the people he intends us to become. So we know we lack wisdom. We know that because maybe it's as a guess, maybe it's an assumption. Hopefully it's a pastoral assumption. But in the face of various trials, trials of various kinds, I don't think our immediate knee-jerk reaction is counted all joy. So we know we lack wisdom. 
We know God's the source of that wisdom, and He loves to give wisdom to those who would come and ask for it. Well, that's how we get it, but does He give it just everybody? Is there no condition? There's only one. Ask in faith. You see, James comes to this place that says God's going to give to to all who ask, but, but you must have faith. If you go to him angry, but yet you go because your anger, your anger doesn't dismiss his faith, let's just, let's just stay in this illustration we've had, the, the reality that this parent has lost their tri- child, this drastic, horrific tragedy has befallen them, and now they're angry, and yet they're running to God because in their anger they haven't doubted His existence. They're running to God because in their anger they, they can't help but see that God is in some way still sovereign over all things. I, I just don't understand. I can't believe He's taken from me, and I know you could have stopped it. You see, that anger, although misplaced and unwise, is still in a twisted way a, a reaction to believing that God controls all things. That anger may drive us to a place that, that runs from God, that dishonors God, that rejects God and hides from God. That's not faith. But when our anger drives us to Him and it drives us to this place where we know He could have changed it, He, he could have done something different. I don't understand. We go and we ask in that Faith, give me wisdom. Give me understanding. Grow me. Help me see what you see so I can rejoice in what you will do, in what you are doing, so that I can rejoice with some sense of understanding, some sense of your understanding. You see, the reality is that these trials that God brings our way would be easy for us to rejoice in if we simply knew all that God knows. If we simply could understand all that God is doing. He's let us in. He's shown us. It's right here in James' words. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Knowing that your faith will be made strong. That it will grow to be steadfast. And, 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 and let steadfastness have its full effect So that you would be made perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. And if you don't understand in the midst of your current trial, if you lack wisdom in the midst of your current trial, or the one that faces you tomorrow when you step out of bed, if you don't understand, go and ask God. Ask Him in faith. And He will give you the wisdom you need. This is His promise to you as His child based upon His nature that when you go to Him trusting Him, 
He will give you the wisdom, the understanding. The beauty is this. He doesn't promise to remove the trial. He doesn't promise to to change your circumstance. He promises you to meet you and provide for you so that you can see what the trial is doing. So that you can join him in rejoicing because he's bringing you to be like Jesus. It's shocking to me. The James not once says, pray and ask God to change your circumstance. Pray and ask God to end your trial. Instead, James says, seek God for wisdom so that you can understand the trial. To do it in faith. Because God gives to all who ask in faith. I'm wrestling in my mind with whether or not I am. So as we walk through Ecclesiastes, many of you will remember this, some of you won't. We went through a section focusing on wisdom. It was interesting that Solomon over and over and over challenged us. It's better to be wise than a fool. Wisdom is better than foolishness. But over and over and over, he reminded us that wisdom is limited. And in the end, no matter how wise we get, we need faith. At some point, wisdom has to begin to trust the God who is. And here, standing in the place of James, or listening to James now as our instructor, James isn't saying, no, that's not true, but James is looking at it from the other side of the coin, and he's saying, but every person who has faith needs wisdom. Where will you get it? Where are you going to grow in it? How Is it going to come to you? And I want to remind you of a out of out of the out of one of the books that I was reading through Ecclesiastes. I just want to remind you a perspective that I I think is valid and valuable here. This is from the book Table in the Mist by a guy named Jeffrey Myers. He writes. Even though Adam and Eve began their biological life as adults, they were nonetheless children in their experience of life and the world. It seems evident that God's program for them was to gain wisdom through their experience of life and the world, patiently waiting for God to grant them the gift of royal judicial authority symbolized by the tree of the the knowledge of of good and evil. As Adam faithfully ate of the tree of life, giving thanks to God for his life, and as he diligently guarded and served the Garden of Eden and his new wife situated in the midst of the garden, he would slowly mature into the kind of man qualified to rule over God's creation. Remember, the command was to go be fruitful, rule, and subdue, right? That's what God had called him to do. But yet, as an inexperienced child adult, was he wise enough already The perspective is here that God was going to grow him in that wisdom in relationship. He goes on. 
The tragedy recorded for us in Genesis 3, however, is that Adam failed to guard the garden and his new bride from the attack of the serpent. They seized what God had asked them to wait for, and as a result, they were banished from the garden with fatal consequences. Adam presumptuously and prematurely snatched what would have been his if he had trusted God's promise, the authority to judge good and evil. He listened to the serpent and decided that he didn't want to wait for God's permission to rule. The seductive power of being like God now and ruling like him, judging good and evil, overcame our original parents. God's plan, however, was not thereby thwarted. God's program for the maturation of humanity continued. Now, however, after the fall, mankind would learn and grow into a mature image of God only through intense suffering and the curse of death. But the path to maturity, although now more difficult and frustrating, was nonetheless the same. In the book of Ephesians, God tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. To be made holy and blameless before him. You don't get that way overnight. And he does it through trials Of various kinds. So count it all joy my brothers. When you face trials of various kinds. Because God is making you what his justification has said you are. And if you can't count it all joy today. You plead with him in faith. For the wisdom. For the understanding to apply what you know he said is true. Let's pray.